goodness. I'm excited that you're here. We're excited that you're here. Thank you for being here and uh, in our series, Messy. It's a very short series. It ends next week on Father's Day, so make sure and come back because uh, we have a child dedication and a bunch of other stuff planned. It's going to be awesome. But uh, basically, this series is setting us up for, it's kind of a prelude series for another series we're doing that I'm happy to announce is called Canvas. And Canvas launches the week after Father's Day, and it's when we unveil to you all that we're hoping and dreaming for, for the new building, uh, the new location that we have, all the plans, the remodel, the times, the amount of money we need to raise, all of that. But I know enough about doing these, uh, these presentations to know that these things can be a little messy. And so this series is supposed to give us all an opportunity to step back and really ask some difficult, uh, messy questions, some questions that I might call full of tension, so that we can understand how we fit inside this whole idea of local church, because these questions are going to be asked when we launch Canvas and when all of us are asked to be a part of this uh, movement that I think God has given us in this new building. So that said, the video you just watched, the video, which I have an image of for you, the video was a video that a man, it went around on Facebook for a while, of a man painting with, I believe it was oil paints on what he called dark water. And the beauty of the video lies within its contrast. Okay, lies within its tension between the nothingness of the dark water and the tension or the contrast of the color added in a masterful way. Look at this messy quote right here. At a certain point, you have to kind of realize that greatness is a messy thing. At a certain point, you kind of have to realize as you walk with Christ that if you really want to be great in the kingdom, if you really want to be who God called you to be, you're going to have to learn how to be less than. You're going to have to learn how to serve. You're going to have to learn how to, how to live inside the tension of your life contrasting against the life you hope to live. I am here now, but I don't really want to be here now. I want to be here I want to be uh, financially stable. I, I want to, my marriage to, to, to not be dealing with these things it's dealing with. I, I, want to, I want to get my kids to a point where I feel like they really have a good grasp of what's going on in this life. Or I need my relationship circles to be smoothed out. They're, they're just too messy. And so you live your life in this tension of who you are now versus who you want to be. And oftentimes you're unhappy with who you are now because you're not who you want to be. You are, in your own eyes, dark water. When really you want to be a beautiful painting, picturesque, sitting in a wooded area or on a beach or on a mountain or by the ocean and proclaiming, all right, I think I got this. I have never yet met a person who could exhale, look me in the eye and say, I think I got this. This person does not exist. I finally realized at 39 years old. I've searched for them. I've thought I found them once or twice. I really did. And I was like, he's it. She's it. Look at this. Life good financially. I meet their kids. Okay, kids are good. Kids are decent. Look normal. Everything seems pretty normal. But see, as a pastor, oftentimes what comes to me are the things that people don't share with other people, the not normal things. And many of these lives have come to me with everyday, average, real life, messy problems. And then suddenly this person that I thought I wanted to be is just a better version of the person I already am. <laughs> and I go back to trying to paint a picture of my life that I just don't think quite yet exists. There is a tension in the messiness 
attention that brings greatness, attention that unless we can, from a spiritual standpoint, really engage in, I think we will miss fully expressing through the Holy Spirit who we are as a church, who we are as families, and who we are as individuals being formed by Christ for Christ. One more thing about tension I want to let you know. This doesn't have to be crisis. I want to be careful sometimes about talks like this. I feel like sometimes from a spiritual perspective, people think that I only talk surgery, right? So when I come in and I'm like, hey, we got to talk about this, this thing with your knee, the first thing they do is go, okay, we got to cut my knee off. Is that what we got to do? No, no, because as a, as a guy doing what I do, we can also just, you know, require stretches. Like you don't have to cut the knee off every time just because some Sundays we do. I don't know where you're at in your messy. There's degrees of messiness. Let me share with you one example of messiness my wife and I are dealing with right now. In our home, I am what is called tidy. I take off my socks and my shoes. I put my shoes away. My socks go in the laundry hamper. It's unbelievable. Right? I take my watch off. It goes same place every day, like every single day. <laughs> I, I take my shirts off, and if they're not wrinkled, I'll hang them back up because I don't want to waste water, nor do I want them to get worn out by the process of washing, which destroys your clothes, by the way, if you overwash, except for jeans. My wife, my wife is what you would call not tidy. <laughs> my wife will basically just, there'll be a trail of clothes from the front door to the bedroom just sort of spewn throughout the, the house. Is spewn a word? Spewn? Or strewn. <laughs> spewn feels, I don't know why, but I like spewn better. We're going to use spewn for the rest of today. Spewn throughout the house, okay? You can actually tell if she got a drink of water because there's a sock over there, and then she'll come back, just grab something, leave whatever j jacket she's wearing. Her purse, her mom bought her a brand new purse. I found it in the front room, halfway over. Stuff just falling out. I refuse to even reach for stuff in her purse. If I ask her for gum, it's her who has to go cave diving for gum, not me, because I will literally come up with Ritz crackers, hair, and half a lipstick just on my hand. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's like a 15-year-old Halloween bag. You just don't even know what's in there. You don't even know. You remember how I put my... my <laughs> My watch at the same place every time. I bought my wife when we were very first dating. It didn't have a lot of money. I bought her a pair of low-end Tanzanite earrings. Very first gift I've ever bought her, right? We were 19 years old. Tanzanite earrings. The other day, she reminds me, hey, don't forget, you got to grab my Tanzanite earring. I said, your Tanzanite, the one I bought you? Yeah. Yeah, it's at the bottom of the sink in that you thing. It has been for like two weeks. I dropped it down the sink, but I kept it there. I know where it is. I'm like... It's unbelievable. Like, it's like a heartfelt, like, like, and she's like, yeah, it's right there. The other one's right here. One right there. One right here. I'm good. I'm going to bed. Can you hand me that bag of chips on the floor? It's just crazy. You just don't know. You don't know. So my wife and I, here's the thing. My girls are a combination of both these things. The two, my son's already moved out. My girls are uh, uh, 17 and 13 living in our house, and they are an awkward combination of both of these things. And what's amazing is I, I actually really enjoy that about them. They are both tidy and not tidy. And we have learned to live in this non-critical tension in our life. Our, our, our marriage is not struggling because my wife, you know, spoons clothes everywhere she goes. 
<laughs> or strewn, strewn clothes. Whatever, man, I'll do what I want to do. So I just, I put it wherever, and, and, and it's not, but it is tension. And when I talk about tension today, I want to be able to, you to connect with that emotion. I'm really big on that, that you just don't connect with me and what I'm feeling, but that you feel it yourself. Like the gumballs last week. Feel that tension inside your life in situations. Not only critical things, which occurs, but also everyday things. Just the tension of like, I wish the house was a little more tidy. I wish the house didn't have to be so kept. I wish, I wish, I wish. That's the tension we're talking about today. I believe there exists, using those examples, a kind of messy spiritual tension within every human being that unless fully explored can never be fully expressed. I believe that because I wrote it. That's why I believe it. Okay? I believe that because I wrote it. There exists within all of you. This is after doing this for 18, 17 years. All of you, a messy spiritual tension that unless you can fully sit within, you will not fully express your full potential in God. I believe that, and I'm going to show you why it's biblically founded. The clearest picture I can think of that expresses this is found in a commonly taught verse looked at from a not common perspective. The verse is John chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 3, and it's the story entitled, The Woman Caught in Adultery. I think, and I don't say this a lot, but I actually think this is a poorly titled chapter of the Bible. I don't think it's titled correctly. I think it's titled from a time when the verse was heightened and focused upon the woman and not the woman and the men who brought her. I think instead it should be entitled, The Adulterous Woman and the Righteous Believers. Because the story is truly, from a biblical uh, perspective, the story of these two uh, experiences, these two mediums, the dark water and the bright color, okay, the painting. There is created tension in this story, and it's not about her, which the title will lead you to believe. It's about both of them, and then eventually about Jesus. Let's read just the first description, gives you a summary of what's happening in the story. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. The scribes and Pharisees were teachers, rulers, guardians of truth. They caught this woman who had broke the truth and broke the law, and so was about to be publicly condemned. They caught this woman in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? First thing I want you to know about this woman is that she's caught. She's not confessed. She's not uh, confronted. She's flat out caught, meaning no one in the entire environment is confused while they're, why they're there. She's messy, she's stained, she's dirty, she's caught, she knows it, the scribes and Pharisees know it, and Jesus knows it. Her unseen sin, her sin off in the distance, has been pulled out into the light. The word they use here is the midst. She was caught and pulled out in the midst. Her sin is now seen. Everyone knows what she did and who she is. And the Old Testament law prescribed death for those caught in this particular sin. She was a mess. There was no one in doubt of this. She was, to drive home the illustration, a woman of rags. These are my rags. This would have been her drug through town because as soon as they caught her, they knew that the law already made sure that she was going to die. So they push her from floor to floor and, and through door to door until eventually she falls at the feet of Jesus. In the midst of the dust, it said, 
and she's laying there exposed for all to see her seen sin. She is a quiet example of what a life in desperate need of grace looks like. She has no hope, no future. Her life is damned as of this moment with no way out. Now, bringing this woman, we have these men. And these men have spent their entire lives being educated about the Old Testament with their current scripture, which we call the Old Testament. Their entire lives searching page after page, having debates about the nuances of what truth really is and how it applies to every situation. They were men who were educated and disciplined at hiding anything inside them that didn't appear to be holy. Now, they would still confess that they were broken, but they were so revered because of their ability to not allow that brokenness to be seen that they almost appeared sinless. If she was a woman of seen sin, they were men of unseen sin. If she was a woman of rags, they would have been men of robes. They would have wore a robe just like this. This is a Hebrew tallit, Jewish tallit, and this would have been their prayer shawl. They most certainly would have had something just like this on them. And it would have had all the diff- knots for every single Jewish law so they could remember them. They would have had most of the uh, current scripture of the day memorized. They would have known exactly what the woman's sin was. They would have known the truth in God's word that condemned her. And they would have stood around her in the midst of her rags, proclaiming her unworthiness while touting their knowledge, their wisdom, and their righteousness. They were men of robes. And they were standing their ground upon God's word, and only God's word. And everything they did in their life, they believed they understood from the perspective that God cared mostly about truth. If this woman was a quiet example of what a life in a desperate need of grace looks like, these men were a loud example of what a life based only on truth looks like. A life refined, a life disciplined, a life that you really couldn't poke any holes in, a life that is very stage-like, very pastoral, very appearance of control and discipline. This would have been who they represented and how they lived their life. See, there's always been a significant tension between these two expressions of humanity, whether it's outside the community or inside our church, people generally know kind of where they fit. These people, people of rags, are people who have made such public mistakes that they really have a hard time uh, looking some other people, especially these people, in the eye because they know at the end of the day they are just the sum of their mistakes, and they've made so many that so many know about that at the end of the day there really is no value for them in the community, and so they just come and they connect and they find hope in some things, but in most things, they don't feel like they have a lot to offer. These people, they have too much to offer. They sit around and make decisions in their head about what they would do if they were the one on stage, or they were the one leading, or they were the one guiding. They look back over their life at their many successes and their discipline, and they wonder why other people couldn't have just taken the same path they did. They grab hold of a specific law at a specific time and say, that's not going to work out well. God's truth reigns. And they drag people like this into the light while hiding stuff in their own lives. Or they watch people like this fall into the light. They don't do any dragging. They just wait to hear what Jesus is going to do about it. 
Rags are robes. We all fit into one of them. I would have to admit that I wrestle with this one probably the most at the season I'm in right now. I wrestle with it because there's a church I have to lead and oftentimes I have to pretend I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I have to convince people that I know what I'm doing even though sometimes I, in my head I'm like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. I think it's the right thing to do. We gotta do something. And I wrestle oftentimes with people who continue to throw their lives down a path that we know will lead to destruction just so that other people have to come and save them. And so suddenly I find myself, maybe not often, but a little bit self-righteous. And I can say that because I spent five days on this material and God broke my heart over it. Now, I don't think that I outwardly live my life that way. But today's not really about outwardly living, is it? Today's about what's really going on in your heart. And the better you do, the bolder you become about hiding your darkness. The better you do, the bolder you become about hiding your darkness. I would also say, the more you struggle, the more secure you become in your struggle. It just becomes what you do. I'm an addict, man. It's what I do. I drink. It's what I do. I rage. My dad raged. My grandfather raged. I can't tell you how many guys I've sat with. Yeah, I rage. It's what my whole family's done. It's just what I know. Oh, well, I think Jesus has something to say about both these people. Let's go back to scripture because it's the one with all the answers. After they came to him, they asked him, what do you want to do? You got rags on the ground, you got robes up above. They said this, verse 6, to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. It says then that Jesus, who was standing in the middle, did something unique. It's the only time I think in scripture it says he did this. He bent down and began writing on the ground. Another version, most versions say he bent down and began writing in the dust. He does this while the men continue to, uh, to discuss what should be done and how it should be done. And then apparently somewhere inside this, this expression that Jesus is having between these two expressions of humanity, someone picks up on what he's writing and suddenly everything changes. Verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And they... And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. A couple things I want you to know about this verse. First off, make a mental note that he stood up. He was writing on the ground. They continued to challenge him. He's writing, he's writing. Didn't say he's doodling. Didn't say he's, he's resting. He was writing. We know that. Then it says he stood up and he asked them, any of you who have... Uh, Never send, you can throw the first stone, of course. At this point, something happens, starting in the hearts of the older men, and then leading all the way down to the hearts of the younger men. Stones are dropped, they walk away. A few things. First, mental note, he stood up. Second, I told you, all of these men, especially the older down, would have known all of Scripture. Now, there's a lot of ideas about what was probably being done here, but I'd like to give you my guess my best guess about what Jesus was writing on the ground. Because Jesus came to fulfill scripture. He came to fulfill prophecy. And what I believe perhaps he wrote was the verse in Jeremiah that is very unique and really fits nowhere else. Jeremiah 17, 13. Perhaps Jesus wrote that reference in Hebrew. First older, oldest man there notices Jeremiah 17, 13, 13, 13. Realizes what it is. Other men just keep going, just keep challenging him. So he writes out the verse, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written 
in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And maybe he finishes the verse and then he writes the oldest man's name. And the oldest man goes, ah, yeah. Jesus has proclaimed to be the what? Living water. Jesus has proclaimed to be the Lord Almighty. Maybe he references the verse or maybe they know the scripture so well, he just starts writing names referencing the verse. But either way, he writes something that causing the older men first to go, no, 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 no. You're pulling me down in the dust with her? You're putting my name down in the dust with her? Slowly he writes the names. Then what does he do? He stands up, locks eyes, challenges them, goes back down, keeps writing, perhaps finishing with the youngest man's name. And then he waits, perhaps. The older men leave, causing the middle-aged men to look closer at the verse. And the young man, who probably was on the wrong side, comes around and realizes that's his name, realizes the verse reference, and then quietly backs off, asking the oldest man, what just happened? Jesus, at this point, is sitting in the dust with these names. Perhaps he wipes it all away. I'd like to imagine that he does that. He wipes it all away, and then he turns his attention back to the woman. Notice again, verse 10, second time, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And neither, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, you got to be careful with people that are really wrestling in their rags. People in rags are looking for heroes. This is just a bottom line. This is like ministry 101. When you help someone or you bring someone to the Lord, oftentimes one of the first mistakes that I've, that I've seen make is they assume you save them, not Jesus. It just happens. People looking for saviors, look, they're in rags. They're, they're looking for anything that will cleanse them, that will bring hope to them. I want you to notice something because I've heard this verse preached a lot. Jesus is a protector of people in rags. Jesus will get down on the ground with you when you're in your dust. Jesus will, Jesus will. Now, let me be very clear here. Jesus bent on the ground and confronted the men of robes, stood up, locked eyes, and said, change your ways. Throw a stone if you've not sinned, or remember your sinners, and stop condemning this person that is in such need of grace. Men realized it, and they walked off. Then Jesus is on the ground. He asks the woman, where are they? She says, no one's here. He stands up. Two different versions of the Bible in both those instances define him as making himself ready. He makes himself ready to those in robes and says, all right, here's the deal. If you have sinned, you, not sinned, you can throw a stone at her. Of course, they walk off. Then to this woman in rags, he stands up. He makes himself ready, locks eyes with her and says, where are they? They're not here. First thing he does is he puts her on equal terms with everybody. Is anyone here to condemn you? No, that's right. Because you are the same when you're in rags as everybody else. Your sin might be more public and might be more exposed. You might have stuff inside your life that is, that is more obvious, causing a spiritual limp, if you will, so that people can pick you up out of a crowd. You look like a certain type of sinner. You smell like a certain type of sinner. You dress like a certain type of sinner. And that may be your thing, but when Jesus comes into your life, the first thing he does is speak truth into your grace-needed life and say, you are equal as everybody else in the room. Once you realize you're equal, then I'm here to tell you what right now, and you better listen, my ragged fellow Christians. Jesus Christ makes himself ready. He stands firm, he looks you in the eye, and he says, change your lifestyle. 
change your ways. You don't get to just live however you want, whenever you want, under the covering and grace of Jesus Christ. Don't be like those men in John chapter 8. Don't be one of those churches that comes out and speaks against my lifestyle. This is how I want to live. This is who I am. This is how God made me. Nope, nope, nope. Jesus says, stand up. You're equal. Stop thinking you're worse, but you're not better. And you need to change your lifestyle. His words are harsher than mine. Stop sinning. Stop using your rags as royalty to get what you want in an easier way. Stop acting like, well, that's just the best I have. That's just the handshake I was given in life. It's just what it was. No. Change your life. Look at the eyes, into the eyes of Christ and be responsible. These men dropped their stones. If anything, I'll be honest, in the story we know one thing. We know the men who carried stone and the men of robes knew enough truth to know that they themselves were in the wrong. They dropped their their expression of their brokenness on the ground and walked away. We don't know how this woman turned out. We don't know if she went and exchanged her, her rags for, for wholesome clothes. We don't know if she went and changed her life. We assume, we think so, because Christ, his word comes back, not void, Scripture says. But the reality is, what we know is they were confronted, they were convicted, and they changed. We assume now that the rest of Scripture reading parishioners like you would assume she would be confronted, convicted, and changed. Stop using this verse to somehow convince you and your friends that your lifestyle is fine. I get drunk on the weekends. I just go to church at the, you know, on Sunday. I can rage inside. I don't actually do anything about it. Do something about your brokenness, about your stuff, about the things in your life. Change your lifestyle and sin no more. This is the only way that true expressions of grace and truth can be brought together. It's it. What's so amazing about this whole picture is that if you just called a giant timeout and just really, really looked at it for what it was, what you have are people living their life based on truth, confronting people who are in incredible need of grace with Jesus physically, not just spiritually, physically standing between them. You may not know this, but our God is the embodiment of grace and truth. He is the bringer equally of both Together, And this is the thing, grace and truth together, like my wife and I together between tidy and untidy, they bring tension. I mean, internal, contorting, heart-wrenching, heart-burning tension. I want to have grace because I love them, but I don't want to get caught up in their stuff anymore and pull my family into that drama. I want to speak truth, but I don't want to confront every single person's lifestyle that I bump into. Let them live how they want to live. I live inside this tension with you. The Bible says that Jesus came and that he, better than anyone else, embodied it. Jesus himself, in John chapter 1, 14 and 17, this is what it says about him. Beloved, uh, John 1, 14 and 17, that's 7. Almost? No? Okay. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word we know is Jesus, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of God, ready? From the father full of grace and truth. This picture is a literal description of who Jesus is, grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He's showing you humanity's fullest extent of the expression of what grace in need of and truth built upon looks like in this picture. And it's Jesus who is in the middle. The tension you physically see in this story between grace and truth is Jesus who, according to Scripture, and I could give you 15 verses on it if you want me to, is love. The tension between grace and truth is love. The filter is love. Our God is love. That's what he brought. 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 11 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world, Jesus, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay, ready? All humanity expresses itself in these two primary ways from a spiritual perspective. If you confront your own spirituality and want to explore who you are, you are going to face two different doors. You're going to face the door of truth about who you really are and about what God says you can be, and you're going to face the door of gross, grace, about your grossness, ha, and who you really are and what you can't be. These two things right here are the full expressions of humanity. It doesn't get any farther apart and it doesn't get any closer together ever than these two things. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of true grace and true truth. He is the embodiment of these things, and he does so with the expression of his love. This is why, this is why Jesus hanging naked, beaten on a cross with metal through his hands is the most disturbing, wrong, disgusting beautiful, holy, unbelievable picture you can possibly imagine. Because he is the embodiment of grace and truth, and he is the tension through his love that is beyond anyone else's understanding. And when you embody that, then suddenly you, like Jesus, can walk into a truth-filled situation and be who you're called to be without giving up ground based on your the word of God and your beliefs, but you can also show with love in your eyes and forgiveness in your heart what it means to be somebody who can come down into the dust and recognize I'm already there with you. My name's just written three feet away. This is what Jesus came to bring together, and this, my friends, is my messy life and yours. It is messy and colorful and beautiful and dark, and seen and unseen, but given to the hands of the master, it can create an unbelievable picture of who God is through us and what he wants to paint with our lives. I exist inside this messy tension between these two mediums of grace and truth. I exist there. Yet when they are lived out together within my life, I can express, and so can you, something beautiful that I could not alone, and that beautiful thing is the love of Christ. That's what I can express from this place of both rags and robes within me.
So today, what are you clinging to? Or maybe a more provocative way to ask it is, which do you need to be freed from? Do you need to be freed from your rags? Have you been living a life in the shadow of your own poor decision-making? Every room you walk into, you try to figure out who's going to be there to figure out who knows what you did or didn't do. Every time you express your opinion, you realize that you haven't lived up to that. And rags are just kind of who you've become and kind of who you'll always be. You're the sum of your rags. Or do you need to be freed from your robes? Have you built such a hidden life, such a disciplined life, such a structured life? And you know that it's fairly watertight. And so you kind of spin inside yourself, realizing that some of the thoughts you have and some of the desires and some of the stuff in you that you know is broken but isn't that broken, it has nowhere to go. You can't confess it. You can't express it. And so all you can do is try and share with other people why they should not live their life like they do and, frankly, live their life more like you. Do you walk around with an air of, I figured this out a long time ago. Do you walk around with an air of, I've never been able to figure this out. Do you recognize both airs are both inappropriate and correct? As a Christian, there's stuff in my life I want to tell you I figured out a long time ago. I mean, there are things in my life that I cherish that I did not cherish in my 20s that I cherish in my 30s. And I am convinced there are things in my 40s that I will cherish that I don't even know I need to cherish now. I figured that out a long time ago. But I'm also here to tell you there's stuff I drag with me, stuff that is stained to me, stuff I just can't seem to get rid of, stuff that I'm embarrassed to admit I still deal with, like some of the stuff I shared with you today. And sometimes I feel like that defines me. We are people called to recognize and explore both these places. And through the name of Jesus Christ and whose love has forgiven and made me whole, be his grace-filled and truth-filled hands to this broken world as we proclaim, I know a lot. I don't know very much. I am very stained. I am made fresh like white snow. I am hurting. I am hopeful. I am filled with joy and sadness. I am messy. And so are you. And my God lives in the tension of that truth and loves me anyways. He is the miracle maker. And he can free you from those stones you've been throwing or those stains you've been carrying. He wants you to live different than you showed up. He wants you to live with him as your center and your core. I want to give you some time to think about which of those things you were struggling with today. Maybe it's both in different scenarios. Let's just spend some time in worshiping the one who came to change it all. Let's just consider how he wants to transform our hearts and where it is he wants us to go. I would encourage you to value this time more than the time you've sat listening to me because this is the time when it's just you and the Holy Spirit. You can stand, you can sit, you can come forward, I don't know. But wrestle with God in this place. Look at these. 
recognize yourself and raise your eyes and your voices to him. Heavenly Father, there are lives in this room right now that are ready to change. They don't know how, God, but they know that you do. Lord, I ask that in this room there would be a sense of your spirit, your peace, as people are gently and lovingly confronted with their robes and rags. That there would be a sense, God, of, of loving transformation as people are honest about where they're failing, where they're succeeding, where they're taking too much credit, where they're hiding. Lord, I ask in this room that you would just be the center of it all. For you are the one who brings the miracles. You are the one who makes the change. You are the one whose blood cleansed it all. You are the only one worthy of our worship. Of impossible, healer of.
Oh, Jesus.